0: I uh, give you and bring with me the love of Lance and Han. They are absent in the body, but they are present in spirit with you all and have had the pleasure over the last week to speak with both of them and just be encouraged by their love for you and for this church. And uh, my wife, Julie, also sends her greetings. She would have loved to be with you today, but Ethan has been sort of fighting a fever over the weekend and is still down for the count. So uh, she's enjoying the privilege of being a mother this morning and backing me up. Um, Our lesson today, I know that we had said that there was going to be a three-part series and this one was going to be, we've been essentially walking through the footsteps of Peter, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been seeing how Jesus has ministered to Peter. And our time has been spent for the past two lessons in Matthew 4, uh, and today we're going to move to Matthew 16 and uh, I have made your life difficult and the admin team's life difficult by switching the topic. The the topic or the title today was to be God's gift of the cross, but as I went through Matthew 16, this passage, um, I looked at how the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to play out this passage, especially 13 to 23, and I, I realized in my fallenness and, and brokenness that Matthew spends an awful lot of time establishing who Jesus is before he gets to the issue of the cross. And that's critical because until we can appreciate and know who Jesus truly is, we cannot appreciate the grace and the magnificence and the glory of God in the cross. And so I thought it was necessary for us to stop and readjust a little bit and focus on God's gift of knowing who Jesus is. And that's what today's topic is, and it's taken from Matthew 16, uh, 13 through 18. But before we begin, let's go before the throne of grace, and let's pray for God's blessing and the Spirit's uh, enlightenment as we come to this passage, that we would hear what Christ would have us hear today, and that our lives would be changed by the Word of God. Join me, with me if you will. O God and Father, You are our King, and what a joy and what a privilege it is to come before You and to extol Your glory and to praise You. You have been kind, and You have been good, and You have been gracious to us, O Lord. And we have seen day by day and minute by minute, even by being able to wake up this morning, Lord, with healthy bodies and being able to come here today and gather together and celebrate Your glory, we have seen Your steadfast love and Your mercies and your grace, which are new each morning. And we just thank you for that, O Lord. Lord, we confess to you that we do fall short of your glory. And as best as we can to understand you and to know you and to sing your praises, Lord, our best is still not good enough. And we ask for your grace and mercy and for your forgiveness, Lord, for these things, for things that we have done knowingly or unknowingly, Lord, that have departed from your will and your word. And yet, Lord, we are filled with such great hope because of who you are. You are the King. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And you are the one who has paid for our sins on Calvary. And you alone are the only one who is able to bear the burdens, Lord, of our sin and our lives. And you have done so, Lord, 2,000 years ago. And for this, we thank you and praise you and rejoice, Lord, that we are free to worship and serve you. Lord, I lift together this church before you, Lord, as they have many decisions to make and as the family time afterwards, people will be considering the nominations for the leadership of this church. I thank you, Lord, that your spirit will guide and lead, Lord, and that we have clear direction from your word as far as how to proceed in a way that's pleasing to you and how to proceed in a way that will build a church that is built on the true cornerstone, you, Lord Jesus, the one cornerstone, the rock of ages from Genesis to Revelation. So for this, we thank you and we just ask for wisdom and discernment, Lord. And we also pray, Lord, for our leaders of this church, Lord. And we also pray for every burden that's represented in this church, for those who have family members who are sick, for those who have family members who are not saved and do not know you, for those who are struggling with challenges that they're facing at work or at home or with family. Lord, we lift them to you because we know, Lord, that you care as we cast our anxieties upon you that the testimony of the cross is not only do you care, but you are able to take that burden and you are able to transform it into something beautiful for your glory and in this we rejoice. So Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear what you would have us have us hear this day, Lord. And may your Son be highly exalted. In your name we pray, amen. As we approach Matthew 16, 13 through 18, the topic or the focus or the lesson that we're going to focus on today is the lesson of what it means to truly know who Jesus is. Something that seems kind of rudimentary and and kind of not so big deal. But if we can turn back the clock to our series and see where we started in Matthew 4 and look at the lessons that Jesus is imparting to Peter, We have an opportunity to see a path that is being built for Peter's life. And it is the path that is really given to us. And it is the path that is really a provision for each one of us to know Christ, but beyond to know Christ, to be able to glorify Christ in the face of trials that come in light of our affiliation with the cross. Be that trials at home, be that trials on the job, be that trials in our ministries, whatever we're dealing with ultimately, God has provided that for us. And what we said in lesson one, two or three weeks ago from Matthew 4, as Peter encounters Jesus face-to-face on the beach at Galilee, our first lesson that we said is, because we are God's creation, and because we are sinners who are totally depraved by nature, our greatest need is not necessarily a better job, a better pastor, better elders a better spouse but ultimately our greatest need is what it's the infinite love of god that gives us grace and mercy when push comes to shove that's really the bottom line and we said in in lesson one with peter what peter discovered that day by the side of the beach is that god had given the entirety of his infinite love in one place the person and the presence of jesus christ And then in lesson two, we moved on and said, okay, God has given us his love in Christ. How then specifically does God give us the love in Christ? And how are we supposed to receive that love? And we said, as we looked at Matthew 4, that God had clearly given the love of Christ to a world and to a people who were dying in their sins and cursed through the light of his word that it was his word that brought light and life to the people in Galilee at that time in that moment. And we said the way in which Peter received that love was through a simple act of obedience. That when Jesus gave the command, which is really a command of love, come now and follow me, Peter dropped his nets and left everything and obeyed immediately and instantly. And what we saw and what we'll see as we go through Matthew after that is that that simple act of obedience, which is an obedience which is really born of faith, a faith that acknowledges that Jesus is the King and He is the Lord of glory and He is worthy to be obeyed and obeyed instantly and immediately. That simple act of obedience launched Peter as we go from Matthew 4 through 16 on a life-transforming journey. It is a journey or a path of God's love for Peter. And it is a journey of faith where Peter is walking, not by sight, not by anything that he had depended upon in his past life, his fishing skills, his ability, his family business. None of those things could hold Peter. At the end of the day, Peter had one thing which was certain which was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And many times, in times of trials and difficulties, that is the place that the Lord brings us to, where no amount of money in our bank account, no amount of wisdom, no amount of skill, no amount of expertise, whether it be in biblical counseling or a seminary degree, none of those things can hold us or preserve us. And the only thing that can hold us and preserve us is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as Peter walks down this path, the question for our lesson three today is where ultimately does that path lead? And Matthew answers that in Matthew 16. And the destination, we're following a path of simple obedience, following the path of God's love for us, his plan, his destiny for us, brings us to one place and one place alone. It is to knowing who Jesus truly is. And I'm sure you say, well, what's the big deal about knowing who Jesus is? Everybody in America knows who Jesus is. Even Homer Simpson knows who Jesus is, right? And if you ask anybody in your school or your co-workers who is Jesus, you'll get some sort of answer which will bear some sort of resemblance to what we as American Christians have grown up with. And yet I would propose to you, and I hope by the end of our our brief time together, and I hope it's brief because I want to make sure you don't melt in the heat here, but as we get to the end of Matthew 16 and and we see what the Holy Spirit is guiding Matthew to shepherd our hearts, and as Christ shepherds Peter's heart, is this notion that the knowledge we're talking about is not the knowledge of picking up a systematic theology textbook and reading it, picking up a newspaper, watching a, a history channel. We live in a time uh, where technology is God, technology rules. We live in the information age. And in the information age, information rules. He who has the most information has the most power. And yet anybody, when you look at our families, our husbands, our wives, our children, the people who are close to us, I think you'll agree with me that knowing someone in that context and knowing someone within the context of love amounts to something much greater than just having information about that person. And that is the love and that is the knowledge that we find present in Peter and that is the love and knowledge that Jesus shepherds Peter in this passage. Ultimately, we are talking about a love which Paul says and a knowledge which Paul says that everything in his life, being at the peak of Jewish society, family, wealth, education, all of these things, he counted what? As loss. In the loss column, a liability, a debt, a stumbling block, in in comparison to the surpassing knowledge of Christ. And then Peter and 2 Peter, as he is encouraging saints who are just getting beaten down and they're dealing with false teachers and persecution, he says to them in 2 Peter 1 that it is through the knowledge of him that God has provided everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so clearly, both of these men filled with the Spirit of God are coming to us and saying that the knowledge that we're talking about of what it means to truly know God is something special, it's something supernatural, it is something that is a gift from God that we can neither buy nor earn nor study nor get there. It's more than information. And that is the point that God is bringing Peter. And we're going to read this text from 16, 13 through 18, a brief portion But before we get there, I want you to see that path of what gets Peter there. Peter, by making this simple act of obedience, suddenly is launched on this transformative journey of faith. And as he goes down this path, all of a sudden he is no longer merely an observer. As Christ is his Lord, he becomes a participant in the glory of God. So Peter gets to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive the words of Jesus, the words of the king with the Sermon of the Mount. And then he gets to witness the miracles that Jesus does to demonstrate the authority of the king. And ultimately, Peter is sent out on a mission with other disciples where he is called to proclaim the mission of the king. His authority, his power, and the proclamation to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But suddenly as Peter is going down this road, of faith, things start to get messy. He begins to witness Jesus starts to have a rock star phenomena where people begin to crowd Jesus and swarm and travel in the thousands to the point where Jesus has nowhere to go or nowhere to move and has to launch out into a boat. And as Jesus gets this sort of rock star celebrity status, controversy develops rejection develops and hostile opposition begins to develop to who Jesus is, to his authority and who he says he is. And the disciples for the very first time as we get close to Matthew 16, their faith begins to be tested in a way that it has not been tested before. And we've seen this many times in our own lives where we become saved, where the Lord gives us a vision of who He is and there's a season of joy Or we begin in church ministry and we're encouraged and we're strengthened and we're just blown away by the glory of who Christ is and God's love in our life. And then suddenly we hit a wall and things get ugly and we begin to receive rejection or opposition or we're in the middle of a conflict in the last place we would expect in our homes, in our marriages, in our churches. And it's at this time that we arrive, as the disciples begin to face this, that Jesus, the shepherd king, pulls them aside and says, time out as a good shepherd. You need time away with me, and I'm going to shepherd you through this process to shepherd your heart and to shepherd your faith and to prepare you, one, to handle the conflict that you're dealing with right now and to deal with the conflict and controversy which is about to come. And that's what brings us to Matthew 16. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 16:13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The controversy that Jesus is facing is a controversy about who he is, what his identity is, what his authority is. Maybe a year ago or two years ago, there was a controversy about the identity of our president. There was a question that was raised. Chief among them was Donald Trump, who was promoting this, as far as whether President Obama was truly born in the United States. And from that, all manner of conspiracy theories grew and there was all sorts of controversy. Was President Obama really a Muslim? Was he a secret operative for Al-Qaeda who had come in to take good, solid, evangelical Christian America and take them basically down the tubes and to worship Satan? All of these different things came out and it hinged on this issue of Where was he actually born? And Donald Trump called several times and said, what we want to see is we want to see the birth certificate. We want some sort of validation of who this man is. And the reason they asked that question is, they want to establish the fact that his authority as the President of the United States, what's considered to be the most powerful man in the world, by human standards, is really based on who this man is and does he meet the criteria and does he meet the qualifications of the office to wield that power and to wield that authority. And in many ways we see the same thing happening in Matthew building up to this passage. That there really is a conflict going on about who Jesus really is and whether he really merits the authority to come and say, I am actually the Messiah, I'm actually the Son of God, that there's an authority that you need to hear and that you need to obey and that you need to respond to. And in actual fact, that is the conflict and controversy that you and I face every day in our lives, whether it's now or 2,000 years ago. And Jesus nips it in the bud and gets to the very heart of the matter. And as he goes through this passage, you're going to see the three ways he addresses the issue of his identity and his authority, and what it means to truly know him for who he is, who he is according to God's word, and not according to the scuttlebutt or the rumor of men who oppose his authority. And you're going to see that as we go through. The first aspect that Jesus deals with is he addresses the controversy of the king, and he'll address that head on. And then... He will address and explain the issue of the confession of who the true king is. What his identity is and what his authority is. And then, very pertinent for what you will be doing today as you consider who the leaders of your church will be, Jesus addresses how the issue of who he is relates to the church of the king and the identity and the nature of what the church is to be and the identity and nature of what the leadership is to be based on the identity and the authority, not of men, but who Jesus, the chief cornerstone, is. And so what we see is we go to verse 13 in Matthew 16, as Jesus begins and hits the controversy straight on, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He wants to take a poll. He takes a survey of what people have been saying as a result of his ministry. And at this time, his ministry is huge. It is consuming all of the Galilee region and people are leaving from all different parts of the nation of Judah and of Israel and they are coming to hear him speak and to say, is this man the real deal? Who is this man? And the disciples give the response of where the controversy is coming from and they give the response of the people. And they make this statement, which is the survey of what the people say in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, and but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. As you look at that response, you're going to see, I hope, the bulk of the controversy and the conflict that's happening. As we look at that at face value, it's actually not a bad response. It's actually a very well-informed response. It is probably a more biblical response then many, I would say, go on a leap on this, but many, even many seminary students would give. Because what the people are doing when you look at those three names that they give is each of the three are prophets. John the Baptist is a prophet. Elijah is a prophet. Jeremiah is a prophet. Each of those three are men who were sent by God. Each of those three were men who were filled with the Spirit. Each of those three... Confronted a nation and a king who was hostile to God and rebellious against the Word of God. And each of those men called the nation to repent and return to God. And each of those na- men ultimately, in some way, had a connection with the coming of the Messiah. So when you look at that, you say, okay, not bad. It's actually pretty close. And what they're doing is they are elevating Jesus and saying, he's not just Joe Blow, he's actually among a society of the men who we hold most esteemed. It is, as we would say in answer, that's pretty close. And yet what I'm going to propose to you, and what Jesus will clarify shortly, is that when it comes to the Word of God, and it comes to the identity of who Jesus is and knowing who he is, Close is not just not good enough. Close is a one-way ticket to hell. I want to read to you a quote of something that's close. And I just say, think about what it would be like if you heard this coming from the mouth of someone. And what would you say to that person? This person says, my feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior. As a fighter... It points me to the man who once in loneliness surrounded a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were, and summoned men to fight against them, and who, God's truth, was greatest, this is referring to Jesus, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. What do you think of that? It's close. He's certainly a lordship salvation kind of guy. Jesus is not just my Savior, he's also my Lord. His statement is not that far from a community of America who likes to see Jesus in terms of the fact that Jesus is the consummate UFC fighter. Jesus is the consummate winner. Jesus is the consummate person who says, God bless America and is going to make America great in the world. We see this Jesus everywhere. It's close. And yet... If you were to research this and see who made that quote, that quote was given in a speech in April 12, 1922 by Adolf Hitler explaining his perspective on Jesus Christ. And ultimately it was published in his book, My New Order, and it was used as a basis to galvanize the German people to begin the genocide of the Jewish people. Friends, how we handle who Jesus is is critical. How we handle the Word of God and what it says is critical. And if we're going to be close, close is the hallmark of every cult and every heresy, be it the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, and even the Roman Catholic Church. Close is not good enough. And if I was to say to you, I'm saying a few things about you and I'm telling a few things about you. Um, something came up, and your name came up in a conversation and I said a few things about you and it was around 80% accurate. 20% was a little off. What would you think and how would you feel about that? I'd say, well, it was close. And people would be offended and alarmed by that. So, My challenge to you would be, as Jesus is gonna give the challenge to the disciples, where do we get off on basically settling for close with Christ? And where do we get off on settling with close with the word of God? And as you consider your nominations for eldership for a church and for how a church is gonna be run, yes, we look at the men, but we need to look at our own hearts and say as we make this decision, how much of this decision is being made by my opinion or is it being made by the word of God and is my action which is based on the word of God close or is it right on and is it accurate because essentially when the people have said Jesus is one of the prophets the lie that they are perpetrating here is the lie that however honored Jesus is that Jesus is one among many he is one among many He is not the one and only. And it's easy for us as Christians to say, well, you know, I mean, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'll meet people in the medical office and they will come in with a life that is tore up from the floor up. And they will find out that I'm doing per diem work because I'm studying at seminary. And then they'll tell me at the end, oh, you know, He's my Lord and Savior too. And I'm encouraged that there's a path there and that's there, but they've just shared with me for the last 15 to 20 minutes, all manner of ways in which Christ is one among many things that are competing for lordship in their life. And we see this in the counseling room, we see this in the elder board, we see this in our marriage. Is Jesus the one and only? Or is he one among many? Jesus addresses this exact point as he comes back to Peter and he, come back, he comes back to the disciples. And he says, in verse 15, offering perhaps one of the greatest questions that have ever been given and one of the greatest questions you and I will ever be faced with, he says to them in response to that, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Never mind the experts on the History Channel. Never mind all the biblical scholars and critics who raised the question as far as whether Jesus truly existed. Never mind many of the evangelical commentaries which raise the question of whether our text is exact and whether Jesus actually said the words that he said. The bottom line in every conflict and in every controversy is simply this. Who do you say that Jesus is. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. And what Jesus is doing when he makes this statement in response to the statement that Jesus is one of many is he's making a distinction. He's making a distinction between many crowds and many people who know their Bible, who have witnessed the miracles, who have followed him, many who have sacrificed many things to be with Jesus. And at the end of the day, Jesus is still one among many. Many people who could come and be respectable people in our churches and give all the right answers and give all the right information. And Jesus is saying, stop. And making the distinction between them and the men who have been called by God, who have been given the love of God's commandments and his words, and who have followed the path of Jesus through a path of simple obedience by faith and have arrived at this spot where their lives are united with him and they are one with him. And the hallmark of their life at this point in time is that they are with Jesus. He's making a distinction between those two groups and he's making a distinction between the one who is one of many and the one who is one and only. What is Peter's response as he asks this question? Peter comes and provides a simple confession in the next verse. And as we look at that simple confession, we see the confession of the king that comes exactly from the word of God and not from the hearsay or the opinions of men. And as we look at that confession, what you are going to look at is you're going to see the entire fulfillment of the Old and New Testament and you are going to see the entirety of the gospel in these two simple parts. What does Peter say? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a simple statement. We repeat it in our confessions. We sing it in our songs. But do we really understand what Peter is saying here? What Peter is doing is he is broken down by the Spirit of God, the identity of Jesus into two parts. The authority and the office of Jesus The Christ, you are the Christ. And then the second part is the identity, the natural identity of who Jesus is, the Son of the living God. And we do the same thing with anybody of importance or anybody who matters, because those two issues, authority and natural identity, determine really the entirety of our relationship with someone. How do we relate to someone? And we use the statement, President Obama we are doing the exact same thing. We are saying, President, this is the office of perhaps on a human level, the most powerful person in the world. And then the second part, Obama. This is who the man is who fills this office. And Peter provides us with a confession that does exactly the same thing. And I would say to you, that if we do one without the other, we're close. But we're not getting the full picture of who it is who died on the cross for us. And so let's take a moment and have a look at that statement. The Christ, the Christ. What does that mean? We say that all the time. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. John tells us that the Christ is a Koine Greek translation for what? For Messiah. The Messiah. And Peter is coming in here and he's saying not you are a Christ. He's saying you are the Christ. And pay attention to the definite articles because they are of significant importance. You're not just a Christ or a Messiah, you are the Messiah. And Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it means anointed one. Specifically, it means anointed one of Yahweh. And the history of that goes in part back to 1 Samuel. When Samuel comes and the king who rules over Israel at that time is in rebellion against the Lord and has proven unfit to rule and unfit to lead the people on the path of salvation. And God chooses for himself a king who will rule, who will judge, and who will save his people. And as Samuel comes before the sons of Jesse, Samuel chooses different men who he feels would be ideal for that role to lead his people into salvation. And what does God say? Do you remember? That man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. A good indication as we consider our nominations for eldership. And that ultimately God chooses the one who by appearance is the least among all the brothers of Jesse's sons. And what does Samuel do at that point? Let me put my wisdom as a prophet. Let me put my wisdom as an expert. Let me put my love and my relationships for Saul, whatever I think, on hold. And let me simply obey God in this process and his word. And then he takes oil and he anoints David with oil. And that oil is a symbol that God has set apart David as his chosen one who will be his king. And it is a symbol or a sign that points to the fact that God will fill David with the spirit, his own spirit, to empower him because David, like all of us, is a sinner and totally depraved and in and of himself is unable to lead the people apart from the filling of the spirit of God. And that's one of the things that that anointing points towards. And so as He is the anointed one of God, the anointed one of Yahweh. We see that this is God's choice to lead and God's power to lead and God's spirit to lead and God's word to lead. And so then as we go to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, through all the prophets and through Daniel, as they point and talk about and prophesy as Israel is crippled in darkness and sin and as they point to the root of Jesse, the one who will come and fulfill the Davidic covenant, the one who will one day finally come and who will rule in righteousness, who will save his people from their sins and the curse of God's wrath, who will ultimately judge the world rightly and who will ultimately bring the righteousness of God to earth and the kingdom of heaven to earth and bring God's glory to earth. They are talking about who? The Mashiach, the anointed one. Not a king in David's line, but the king in David's line. And so when Peter comes and says, You are the Christ, this is who he's referring to. Not a king, not one of many kings, not a leader. The leader, the king. Not just the king of earth, but the king of the universe. And then when he puts that together with the statement, You are the king, the son of the living God. What is he saying? When he says the Son, the notion of Son in the biblical text is one who bears the image and one who represents and one who has a unique relationship with the Father, the one who is designated. And there can be many sons, but there is the Son, and the Son is the one who will take the title, take the mantle and take everything that the Father has and rule in His stead. Why? Because He is like the Father. Many of you have seen my son. He looks a lot like me because he doesn't have much hair. And I don't have much hair. But I think the thing that amazes Julie and I is the extent to which we have begun to see both of our unique sinful patterns in our son. And, of course, we love to say, oh, Julie, that's you, and, oh, Mark, that's you, and we love to say, this is your sinful pattern, or this is, you know, and point to the other person. But the truth of the matter is that he is our son, not just in physical appearance, but he is our son in nature, even down to the nature and pattern of his sin. And what Scripture testifies to, and Peter is confessing, is that the One who is King is the One who is the Son, who not only in appearance, but in very nature, is like the Father, holy, pure, set-apart, creator of the universe, all-powerful, perfect in righteousness, perfect in wisdom, infinite in love, all of those things, is what he's referring to. There is no man who is like this. And when he says, he is the son of the living God, the phrase, the living God, is an Old Testament phrase that is used to distinguish God, the God, Yahweh Elohim, the one who created the universe, the one who gave the covenant, the one who gave the Ten Commandments, the one who promised salvation for a people broken in sin, from all the other gods that the people of Israel worshipped. Because the history of Israel was one of saying, yes, we worship you. Yes, we're Christians, so to speak, Old Testament. Yes, we're children of the covenant. And they would sacrifice their gifts, but then they would go home and do whatever they wanted because to them, God was one of many. And all the Old Testament prophets would come and say, he is not a God, he is the God. He is the fountain of living waters. And if you're going to treat him as one of many You will stand beneath the curse instead of the blessing and you will stand as sinners who are hostile because as long as you put God as one of many, the same way a husband or a wife, if they put their husband or spouse as one of many, you are unfaithful and you are not loving this person and you cannot know him as such. So when Peter comes and says, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, He's saying he is the one and only. In the New Testament, the Son of God is used to make a clear distinction that Jesus is not a man. He is both true man and true God. What has this got to do with the gospel? The one who sent, who God sent as the king to save us from our sins, to rule us, to guide us, to lead us in righteousness is not a man like you or I. He is not a man who is racked with sin and is crippled and ensnared. It is the Son of the living God, the only one capable of dying on the cross, the only one capable of bearing our burden, the only one capable of leading, and the only one capable of doing it right. I had the privilege while working at Grace to be a pastoral intern which if you know, Grace, it's the lowest of low on the staff scale. But on occasion, John MacArthur's office would call me up and say that there's someone who's asking to meet with Dr. MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur can't because he's here. We thought you would be a good fit for this to represent Dr. MacArthur. Would you go and meet with these people on behalf of Dr. MacArthur? And inevitably, as Mark Chin, five foot two, balding little man, shows up and they're expecting tall, distinguished ex-football player, white hair, legendary, internationally renowned speaker, there is a certain amount of inevitable disappointment. And I understand that, and I appreciate that. And where does their disappointment come? We wanted Dr. MacArthur, and we got this. And that's fair enough. But Dr. MacArthur is just a man, and he is one among many godly men and many godly leaders. What is the good news of our salvation? That ultimately God did not send a man. He sent his own son. He came himself to walk among us, to be challenged, to face our temptations, to face our challenges, to understand, to know what physical pain meant, to understand what rejection meant, to understand what it meant to be dealt with unfairly or unjustly by an employer or a supervisor. To understand, to know what it meant to be like to be betrayed by people who you feel are your family or your loved ones, he experienced it firsthand. And then he died for us on the cross. And so when we put that together, this is not just any man. To know Christ is to know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the confession of the King. What is Jesus' response to this confession? He says in verse 16, or excuse me, verse, verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus captures the significance of of this simple statement that Peter has given and it's important that we pay close attention to it. We use this term blessed all the time. Have a blessed day. I'll phone patients of mine and I'll get blah, 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 blah. Have a blessed day. Blessed this, blessed that. And we use that term an awful lot. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We use it in hymns. But what does that term really mean? And I think we catch a little bit of it but we don't catch the whole of it that within the Old Testament context blessedness is the opposite of what? right? being cursed okay. being cursed is strong language right? if I came up to you and said I'm cursing you or you be cursed wouldn't exactly evoke a warm fuzzy right? you know that's not friendly banter that's very very strong language If you look at many of the curse words, quote unquote, in many old languages, you will see that they are exactly that. They are profanities that are about cursing a person, about shaping their destiny and hoping that their end is miserable and ugly. And the notion of a curse in the Old Testament is that you stand before God as a sinner and you are guilty of his wrath. And your position before God is a dire and difficult one because you rightly deserve the full wrath of God because of your sin. You know, when you see Isaiah coming before God and all the godly men who fall down on their faces before they they, they come before God and they say, woe is me for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. They are talking about the curse of a sinful man coming before God. And so when you see the term blessed in the Bible, what they're referring to is our standing before God. That we are no longer standing under the curse of God. That we deserve for our sin. But we are in a position of favor with God, where He has bestowed grace. And the only way He can bestow grace and favor on our life is some way our sin and our total depravity is dealt with that that is no longer an issue, that God is no longer hostile. And of course, in the Bible, to be blessed means you are in the sweet spot of God's hand and God's will. You are in the place of favor and all things are good. And yes, happiness is part of the product of that. Well-being is part part of the product of that. Being able to go home at night and sleep, a good sleep, free of anxiety and fear, is part of that. Why? Because at the heart, you're in the sweet spot Of God's will. And how often do we look for symptomatic relief for all the things of the curse of sin, where the heart of the issue that we look at is really to be in that sweet spot of God, regardless of the conditions and the circumstances? And Jesus is saying to Peter, You are in the sweet spot of God's will. And then catch this He says, You're not here because of flesh and blood. You're not here because of anything you did, Peter. You're not here because you gave the right answer. You're not here because you did a THM thesis on who Jesus is and was able to give us all the different attributes of God. He says, flesh and blood did not show this to you. How often do we look at our credibility as Christians by our ability to give all the right answers? To play the role to stand in the spot to do the right things and jesus is coming and saying you know me not because of flesh and blood or anything that you did on your own but you did it and you said it because this has been revealed to you by my father who is in heaven the idea of flesh and blood throughout the bible Is a reference of the frailty of man and the brokenness of man and his inability to save himself in comparison to the strength and the stature and the glory and the hardness and the greatness of the salvation of the Lord that comes from heaven. He is a rock. We are flesh and blood. And what Jesus identifies is all that hearsay and all those opinions from all those people who saw the miracles who read their Bible, who talked among friends, who showed up to the synagogues every Friday and Saturday, that those things were not enough to know who Jesus was. At the end of the day, if you and I are so blessed to be a true child of God, it's not because of anything that we have done, but it is the greatness and mercy of God's grace that comes to sinners like us and opens our eyes and says, this is who I am. He doesn't love us because we get the right answer and we know who He is. We know who He is because He loves us. And that is one of the greatest gifts in our lives. Many of you know my family background. Many of you know the fact that my mother was an illegitimate child, half Chinese, half English. If she was born today, she probably would have been aborted. Many of you know the fact that she was adopted through a foster parent program by a Christian family who adopted her, brought her in, under the foster program and ultimately adopted her as their own child. These were the only parents she knew. And when she referred to them, she referred to them as her mother and her father. And to us, they were our Grandpa Hayward and Grandma Hayward, that's who we knew. And that was a grace from the Lord. When we look at that, my mom knew these people and their love for her. And she was able to correctly identify who they were. Why? Because she opened up a textbook? Because she talked to other people and said, Oh, who are these people who are in my life? No, because they loved her. And because God's grace took her from a place of darkness and brought her into a place of light. And in time, when she got to the point where she was able to speak the words, she was able to say, Mother and Father as an expression of the love that she had been given. The confession of our faith is no different. That at the point that we truly know who God is, and we're able to confess it in no uncertain terms, and that confession is consistent with what God has testified to in Scripture. It is evidence in our lives, and it is a sign that we've been blessed by God, and that we have found favor in the eyes of the Lord and that we no longer stand under the curse of sin as much as we fall short, but we stand beneath the blessing of the one and only. As you consider who to nominate for elders, we look at the men and we expect that they're going to be like Christ and that's not such a bad thing. We want that model. But I come and say to you, these men are just one among many. They are not the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And it's important that we make that distinction. They're just broken, frail men like the rest of us. But what we do need to do is we need to look in our own hearts. And we need to say, what is shepherding our hearts as we consider these men? Is it the blessing of knowing who Christ is? That he is the Christ, the Son of the Living God? Or is it the opinions of the many? And that's important for us to consider to shepherd our own hearts in that aspect of things. Let me take you for one last stretch and I'm stretching you just a little bit here to the church of the king. In verse 18, Jesus points out that the blessing of knowing who he truly is is not limited to just our intellectual knowledge. But it is a blessing that has significant bearing on our lives, on our future, on the church, and on the entire history of the world. What he deals with is he makes this connection here and expands the blessing to show that the blessing is connected with the church of God. So when he comes and he says, in verse 18, but I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He makes the statement and the connection between his identity and his authority and the church. And as we think about leadership of the church, really the question we're asking about is, who are the identity of these men, and what is their authority? And what Jesus comes and says to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, and what has been distorted by the Catholic Church to make Peter the rock of the church. When we go through this, we realize that Peter is not the main subject of this. Who is? Who does the action? Who says, I will say to you, and identifies what Peter is? Who says, I will build my church? It's Jesus. And the point that Jesus makes, and that Matthew makes... is that the one who decides what you and I are is not you or me, it's Jesus. And the one who's going to build this church is not you, and it's not me, it's Jesus. And this church is not the church of Mark Chin, it's not the church of Lance Quinn, it's not the church of Han Cho, it's not the church of Bob, Dan, and and James, or anybody else here if this is a true church of God that is born of who Jesus is by His Spirit and by His power, it is the church of the one and only, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if if it is the church of the Son of the living God, then He is the one, not any program, not any agenda, not Grace Church Advance, not Grace Church Community, not Sovereign Grace, Not any agenda. It is Christ who will build the church. How often do we get sucked into that undertow? This is going to be the next plan. These are the people for us. Our church would be so much better if A, B, C, D, and E. And we get discouraged and we get frustrated when things don't work out. And we get disappointed when men who we've nominated to leadership turn out not to be Jesus. We get hurt personally. They're just men. But when we see in difficult times and hard times, when things happen that we don't understand, that it is Christ who is building His church, there is hope and encouragement. Because He will prevail, because He is what? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And He cannot fail, and in time He will prevail. And so when Jesus makes this and paints this framework, He narrows it down and he includes Peter, and he comes to Peter. And he places Peter in the context. And then we'll see that Peter later will place each one of us in the context of this statement. And he says to Peter, You are rock. You are rocky. And upon this rock I will build my church. The Catholic Church has used this to say that Peter is the Pope. But you don't need to be a systematic theologian to understand what Jesus say, is saying here. You just need to be a fan of professional wrestling. When Jesus says, you are a rock, there is no definite article. It's contrasted from Peter's statement. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Jesus says, you are a rock, or you are Rocky. When we refer to the rock, we think of Dwayne Bridges. The rock. And there's a point that's being made there. He is being given a title of power and authority. He is the one and only, the Ra. But Jesus here is saying, you are a Ra. You are not the Ra. And he is using an Aramaic or Jewish rabbinical tradition of giving a nickname where the nickname denotes the nature of the person he's referring to. It's nature and it's quality. It's not authority he's talking about. I have a nickname for my wife. I have a few. I'll only give you one. But I refer to her, you'll know this, I'll refer to her as honey. Honey this, honey that. Why do I say that? Yes, she is the honey in my life. I want that out there for the record. But when I say you are honey, I'm making a reference to character and quality. That she is the sweetness in my life. And so when Jesus is coming to him, and says, Blessed are you because God has revealed this, and you know who I am. You know, in that simple sentence, the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament, and New Testament. You know the gospel which is found in me and who I am. That the gospel is not just a list of 20 different things and 20 different benefits and blessings. The gospel is a person, it is Jesus Christ. And when he says, You know that the gospel is me. You are clearly someone who is born of God, and the one who is born of God is rock, not flesh and blood, not mortal. Think about that notion of what rock is. When we go through the Old Testament, the rock is the God of our salvation, from David through the Psalms to the prophets. When we go into the New Testament, the rock, the cornerstone, is Who? Jesus Christ, the basis of this church, the Cornerstone, Cornerstone Bible Church. I hope that that's the one we're referring to. And so when he comes to Peter and says, you are a rock, you are rocky, he's saying, you have the same nature as me, you come from me, you are born of heaven, and because you are born of heaven, you are not flesh and blood, but you have all the same nature and attributes that I do. And it is those who are born of this material, the material that's from heaven and not from the world, not the hearsay, not the experts, not the intellectuals, but the ones who are born of heaven. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And what is the consequence of a church that is built on people who are born of heaven, whose nature is like Christ, who are like their father, who are little rocks that are like the big rock. It is a church that is filled with the Spirit of God and that the gates of Hades will not prevail. And not even death itself can stop the building of that church, the proclamation of of, of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Why is this good news? Why is this hope? When you go to 1 Peter and you see how he shepherds a community of people who are imploding, they are being persecuted. They are questioning what's the point of carrying on. There is conflict that is happening among them. There is difficulty. There are struggles that are happening. Many may even be doubting their own faith. How does Peter counsel them? What does he say to them? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 2 and we will close with this. First Peter 2. And we'll go to verse 4. Let me go to verse 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him... As to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what does he say? For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, with the truth that Jesus has brought to him in Matthew 16. It is the same author, it is the same man, and the same encouragement that Peter has that he is blessed, no matter how difficult the circumstances, that he stands under the blessing of God, no matter how difficult his employer, his wife, his spouse, his circumstance, whatever chronic illness he is facing, however he has been treated by his peers in the church or outside, he is blessed. Why? because he's been born of heaven and because he knows who Jesus is and because it's been given by God. And when it's been given by God, it can't be taken from anyone. And so he shepherds these people and says, know who you are. Don't go back to the old ways that are familiar. Envy, malice, spite, conflict, all those old patterns that come so easily to us in the face of controversy and conflict. And he's saying, Look, you're not that way anymore. You are rocks. Remember the blessing and greatness of your salvation, that it is a gift from heaven. And remember and be mindful that it is God who's working, not you. And it is God who is building, not you. And that it is His church, not your church. And I'm putting you together, and this church will stand. Why? Not because your circumstances are great, not because your leaders are perfect. Not because everything is working out and you've read every systematic theology textbook. And let me encourage you, I want you to read systematic theology. But the heart of the issue is this. It's because Christ and God is at work in you by his grace and mercy. And it's because you know who Jesus is. And Peter's encouragement for people who are struggling is this. Go back to him. Come to him. Spend time with him. Like a child with his mother, will go for the nurture and encouragement. As Ethan has been sick, he has not wanted to spend any time with me. We had friends over who came over and visited, and they will say that I do not lie, that he pushes me away and wants nothing to do with me because he wants his mother. Because that's where he's going to get fed. That's where the nurturing is. That's where the goodness is. But that is God's designation of the place that he will grow and be nurtured. Peter uses a similar illustration and just exhorts us and says, come to Christ. Be with Him. And as you step forward today and consider the leadership of the church, I'm going to ask for a twist on that. We've spent a lot of time thinking about the men, but I want you to think about your own heart. And I want you to think of Christ and the gift of your salvation. And I want you to think of the hope that comes from Him of who you are, that when we are obedient, obeying Christ's word faithfully and simply, and we're walking as he has created us, as little stones who know who he is, and when our lives and our hearts and this church is shaped by who Christ is, not who this person is who's leading, not who that person is who's leading, but it's shaped by our knowledge of Christ, and we're growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, the way a child does with his mother and his mother's milk. Christ will build His church. This will be His church. And no matter how difficult the gates of hell, death itself will not prevail. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are, that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are not one among many. Thank you for the gift of salvation that has been given to us. We thank you for the truth that has been given to us, Lord. And we thank you for this church which has proclaimed your good news and your gospel and the truth of who you are. We just pray that you will go before us in the days ahead. And we pray that what would encourage us and strengthen us and hold us fast in the face of the trials of the cross would be simply this, our true knowledge of who you are that you are not one among many, but you are the one and only. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In your name we pray, amen.